Hey everyone, I'm Lauren Simmons and welcome back to another episode of Mind Body Wealth. I want to tell you about the time that I tried to buy my first car. I just started working at the New York Stock Exchange. I was living in Jersey and so I needed a car. And I had gone to the Mazda dealership wearing my Burberry coat and carrying the Chanel handbag my mom gave me as a graduation gift. The dealer took one look at me and said, why are you here? Like everyone else, he assumed I came from money. Just like my colleagues at work who assumed I spent every paycheck on clothes, but never seemed to notice the $10 H&M dress under my Burberry coat. Or the fact that sometimes I'd only wear a designer once because I had to return it the next day with the tags still on. When you're working with money, people expect you to have it. And pretending you have it when you don't is part of the game. So you invest in one good suit or one great dress in black or navy, obviously, and you fake it until you make it. And if you're really good, you'll convince people that not only do you come from money, you'll convince them that you're really good at making it too. Even if you make as little as I did trading on the floor at the New York Stock Exchange. But you all have to keep listening for that number. Until then, I want us to start thinking about what it really means to fake it until you make it. Maintaining the appearance of wealth when you're working with wealth is important, like it or not. But after you convinced everyone else you belong in the room, how do you convince yourself? How do you stop feeling like an imposter? Today, I've invited my friend, Jesse Murphy, to walk us through his career journey and relationship with money. He's an Emmy award-winning producer and the co-founder of Jesse James Films. But before he ran a fully financed production company with a seven-figure rights fund, he was a Hollywood assistant faking it until he made it. He's got some great advice on making it big and staying sane along the way. So let's get started. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. I am going to fire off some questions. I just want you to say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, I'm on it. One word to describe your relationship with money. Respectful. Respectful. Okay. How often do you check your bank account? I check my bank account probably uh, once every other day. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a difference between being rich versus being wealthy? A uh, huge difference. Yeah, rich, you're working. Wealthy, people are, you're, you're making money while you're sleeping. Do you make money while you sleep? Arguably. I mean, between like my portfolio and then the real estate, like the, the Airbnb I operate, like I, I own a house that I Airbnb. So I guess arguably, but not like in the sense that I'd like to. So there was a study that came out in 2010 that said... If you make $75,000 or more, your level of happiness doesn't change. They have recently just redid that study, and now it is 95000 There are two questions. One, do you think that is true? And then the second question is, if you want to share, what was the first check that you got that you felt relief? You felt comfortable. You felt like... Not life-changing necessarily, but just, I'm fine, I'll be okay. 
I would say, I think 95 is probably a decent barometer. At 95, you can go on vacation, you can have like a basic BMW or basic Mercedes and like have a decent luxury apartment or, you know, the house in LA. In other places, you might be able to do more. Um, I would argue it's probably higher for me personally, but that it's not, there's not a huge difference in joy beyond a certain barometer. The other part of your question was, Oh, what was my check? The first check. I guess the first one that comes to my mind is I produced this show off-Broadway, I guess, four years ago. And my check for that was 50000 up front, and then I owned a percentage of the back end. But the check was probably the largest check I'd received up until that point, because before that, I was always salaried. Mine was a little bit higher. I received... Um a check for 150000 and I just remember being relieved, but I was also more relieved when they said that they were going to split the check up into four payments because I was like, what am I going to do with, at the time, that a large amount of money? How old were you when that happened? Two years ago. Wow, you were like 24 years old. It's incredible. You're not that much older than me, but okay. <laughs> um, but I, I just remember thinking like, oh my goodness, like I could breathe. At the time I was living in New York City, this is enough to pay my rent. But I will say that I don't think my level of happiness changed, but I was constantly always thinking, and still to this day, okay, so my next check, I want to make more than that. My next check, I want to make more than that. But it's not necessarily chasing a level of happiness. It's just, okay, I've set the bar. Now, how do I raise it? And how do I continue to raise it and continue to raise it and kind of go from there? Yeah. My business partner and I talk about that a lot. He's my financier and my business partner. And we always talk about money. Money is a wonderful way for us to keep score. So we'll always look at money as a scoreboard. So it's not the reason why we're doing it, but you do want to keep putting more points on the board. So to your point, I agree with you. I'm a big believer in like how far can one person go from their socioeconomic class from when they were born to when they're done working. Well, let's go into that. Can you tell people a little bit about your background? Because you didn't come from money. Yeah, no, I grew up in New York. I ended up in the mailroom of a talent agency, which for people who don't know, it's In show business, there's usually four major talent agencies that most executives, managers, agents, anyone on the back end kind of starts in. It's a lot of hours and it's minimum wage. And a lot of the folks that I was in that program with, there's a lot of nepotism. So it's a lot of like sons and daughters of wealthy directors or producers or writers, or it's like really successful Yale, Dartmouth, high-end folks. And then... Sounds like the trading floor. (laughs) Yeah, it's very similar. In fact... A lot of guys and girls who were coming from the mailroom had talked about, oh, man, I should have done Wall Street or I should have done. Yeah, yeah. But it was hard for me because I didn't have financial backbone to be able to like live the way a lot of these guys were living. So they were like 21 driving Audis and living in Beverly Hills. So they could work 12 hours a day because their parents were financing them. I ran a shirtless bartending business on the side that I was doing on the weekends and that I was doing during the week. That actually became how I was able to like finance myself until I became an executive at the studios. But a lot of folks, particularly people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, even if you get the opportunity, once you have the opportunity, how do you, how are you able to maintain it? Because you're up against people who are just starting on third base. It's a tricky thing to navigate. No, it is. I mean, my time on the trading floor, I'd speak about this. I was only making 12000 and 
my counterparts as well were only making 12000 Some of them at other firms, for people don't that don't know, the trading floor is like the NFL. The NFL is made up of different teams. You have the same rules, but salary, compensation, HR practices, they're all different based off of the firm, the team that you work for. So firm that I worked for only paid everybody 12000 starting salary. Other firms that worked on the floor, the starting salary was 185000 but the men that worked at my firm, entry level, getting paid 12000 their dads were their dads, and they were still going on trips, flying on private jets, going to really expensive dinners. It was really interesting how our lives were completely different from each other, and we were making the same salaries. How often do you have conversations with people about money, whether it's friends or colleagues? I have always, always, even before the trading floor, have always been interested in how much people make. Does it make them happy? How can I strive to make that much money? And would have very open conversations with people. Depending on the generation that you're in, people do not love to have open conversations about salary. I got called out once on the trading floor. I'll never forget. Someone said, it's just highly inappropriate. Why do you always constantly ask how much people are making and how they're making this money? I said to him, we talk about your wife. We talk about the drugs you do. And you think it's inappropriate that I ask how much you make and how you make that money? Like That's insane to me. But it is empowering to have those conversations. Do you personally do that? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I'm really curious. If I know them well enough, I, I will ask because I definitely want to know. And but particularly when you get to a certain level, like I'm a massive believer in like, no one's going to promote you. Yeah. And I'm similar. I mean, I think my starting salary at Paradigm was 26 or 27,000 a year. So, I mean, you did much worse. But I, I know what it's like to like make absolutely no money. But it's so funny because... You're in these like gorgeous buildings and everyone's wearing these great and you're, I'm like, I'm wearing the one suit I have and I'm trying to switch up the ties. Yeah, I, I know. I, I totally get it. Yeah. I know people who have the same title who make 75 grand and people who have the same title who make 350,000. That's crazy. Yeah. There's a big difference between like having self-worth, but knowing your market value. And that's something that I've always tried to do is put myself in a position where my market value and my self-worth kind of correlate but my self-worth is always slightly higher than my market value. Do you have open conversations with people, I guess, about how much they make? And then do you use that number to kind of help you set the standard? Or where do you come up with your number from? I know what others make in certain positions. So I charge or I like my salary is based on a comparable for what that would look like. Yeah. I think for me, again, I have since been removed from the trading floor for two years. But once I found out that my close friend who worked for a different firm was making 185000 and he looked at me, he said, how much are you making? I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm, I'm not telling you that. But for me, once I got the number 185000 in my head, I said, that is the next job salary. I'm not going to go any lower than that. Now I'm in a different place where like I'm an entrepreneur and you know different hats and so I have to kind of come up with my own number myself. I don't really think that there's a standard, but I do believe that your self-worth is the number that you throw out and I have gotten more comfortable being in a place of okay, you you can't 
pay that, then hit me back up in the future when you can. I think starting out when I left the trading floor, I think I was a little bit more flexible and saying, yeah, you, we can go lower and, and kind of reducing my rate. But I always felt like I cheated myself. And kind of just tying into, I guess, the next question, my family, they, especially my mom, she was the one that really encouraged me to own my number and the people that will come will, will pay that and kind of go from there. And at a certain point in my career when I was making a certain amount of money, my mom just kind of said to me, like, I can't help you any further. Like, you're going you're gonna to need a professional. Like, I can't answer some of these questions or what you should be doing with your money or how you should be um, diversifying it. So she could help me as far along as she could, but she was honest enough to say, you should seek additional help when it comes to your finances. Absolutely. And so I'm grateful for that, but I know some people... And I'm curious if, if this has happened for you where I now at this point make the most money in my family. I don't feel like there's an added pressure of needing to help my family. If there's one person that I want to help, it's my brother. And anyone that doesn't really know the story, my brother, I have a twin brother. Um, he's disabled, wheelchair bound his entire life. And he's really the only person that I feel obligated of helping financially. My family doesn't necessarily come to me for money. They will have a lot of money advice questions. But tell me, Jesse, when you started making more money, did you ever feel that pressure that you needed to help your family more? I've heard you mention the family tax before. Can you talk to the listeners about that? Yeah, I think the family tax tends to be cultural. I think it, it tends you tend to see more minority families or lower socioeconomic class, I would say when you reach a certain degree of success or financial stability, you may see friends, family members, or cousins, not immediate family, looking for opportunities, whether that means work opportunities that they may not deserve or literally just money. If you're from a upper socioeconomic class, which tends to be uh, Caucasian Americans in major cities in the United States, you see far less of it. So if you're a minority and you reach a certain level of success, you actually still have something working against you that your counterparts don't. And it's not really how much money you make, it's how much money you can save. So if you're moving away money out of your account into places where it's not growing or just never coming back to you, make sure that you're comfortable with that percentage that you're willing to give away. And I would argue it should be no more than 2% of your portfolio. Absolutely. You have shared with me before that you felt like you used to hoard money at one point. Can you tell me what's up with that and talk me through what that's like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, there's a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yep, great book. Everyone should read it. <laughs> the overarching theme is that if you are, you know, a poor dad will keep all of his money under the mattress, a rich dad will try to grow the money through spending the money, right, through assets, portfolio buying real estate, et cetera. Um, I'm someone who, you know, up until a certain point and up until I made a certain amount of money, I was holding on to my money. So I wasn't putting it in the market. I wasn't, um, I, I was putting it on the mattress. Yeah. And I think there's this like conversation going around, especially with like Acorn or um, places like it, right? Where it's trying to make it more accessible to start investing early, right? So like you can put like 10 cents into an Acorn account and it can grow. Yeah. I myself 
And I think if that's for you, great. But for me personally, like, I think the best thing I did for myself financially was buy the house that I have, that I own. Yep. And I could not have put the 20% down if I had it spaced throughout different portfolios with the markets moving and being volatile the way they were at the time. So the only way I was able to do it was by actually keeping it under the mattress. Now, I'm not saying that that's what everybody should do. Yeah. But for me, that's worked for the beginning part of my financial career or whatever that, you know, however we want to word that. And now at this point, it's divided, right? So I have like a Charles Schwab portfolio. Then I have a high risk, high yield portfolio with my buddy, Chris. I have a tiny bit of money in cryptocurrencies. And then I have real estate. What do you invest in more? Do you invest in more in the stock market or do you put more money into real estate? Oh, way more money into real estate. I think that there are many different ways to to be able to invest your money. I myself, angel investor, but the next big goal of mine is, well, a few things. I want to start my own fund, but another thing is real estate. And I think for me, what has been booming, has, and this was booming even before the pandemic, are these vacation home rentals. Yeah. There's an area out in Florida that I really love, Rosemary Beach, 30A. If anyone goes out there, it's, you know, million, three million, six million dollar homes but they're charging 20000 to 30000 a week to stay. And because it's in the Gulf of Mexico, the water's always warm, so there's never really an off-season. That is my next investment. Um, and I think it is way more stable than the stock market because what we have found in this pandemic, people weren't able to travel. And so if they were traveling, it was locally, but they weren't comfortable with going to hotels because they didn't want to be around other people. And so I think the real estate vacation home rental has boomed astronomically throughout this pandemic. And I think that it's something that is going to continue to be a thing going forward. So that is where I ask me, you know, how much do you invest in the stock market? Uh, It's very low. But I'd rather be a, an angel investor or invest in real estate. That's just kind of where I've been at. But it has taken a while for me to get there. I feel like imposter syndrome in a couple of ways because people see me as this finance person and you should be investing in the stock market. And anybody that knows, and I've shared this before, when I was on the trading floor, I never invested in the stock market. One, I couldn't afford to invest in the stock market. But two, I, again, just always felt like I wasn't, not financially ready, but I I just, there was this imposter syndrome about investing in the stock market. I knew a lot about the stock market. If I wanted to make moves, I could, but I felt like I didn't. I don't know. Have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome, whether it's through investing or throughout your career? Yeah, totally. Because I was making side money with the shirtless bartending thing, which I, I remember I got my first lowest level creative executive job at Universal when I was on the lot. And I remember I had more money than my salary. I think my salary was like, I don't know, maybe like 50, 60 grand or something like that. But I was making at least that, more than that, with the shirtless bartending thing. So I treated myself to a BMW. 
And I remember pulling it up to the lot and I remember parking next to, it was Marlon's car, my boss Rick's car. And, you know, they had like the Range Rover and the Porsche. And then I had my little like BMW there, which for me was a big thing. And I remember feeling really uncomfortable parking the car there because I thought they're going to judge me because they know I can't afford this on the salary they're paying And the idea that I was making money on the side. And so I felt this like weird sense of like, I shouldn't have this car. And I felt that way. Like when I bought my house, I was like, oh, my neighbors are so much richer than me. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that way about business too. Like my career kind of is, I made a million dollar musical. Great. Now I'm doing a $7 million movie with Netflix in January where it's like, well, that's, that's a lot more than the the last go around, but I'll feel comfortable doing that, and then I'm going to want to do something larger. But each time is actually a new experience. And if you're not putting yourself in a position where there's a degree of imposter syndrome, then I think you're you're staying too stable. Of course, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. I was thinking about, I myself know very little about the market and how it moves and what to buy and all these things. But I have like my guy at Charles Schwab or whatever. Yeah. Things like Acorn where they're trying to teach you. And for me, I guess my question is like, do you think it's more important for people to get educated in it or just have someone that they trust do it for them? Education, always. First of all, I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you. there are people that you can trust, but can you really trust people? I don't know. Like money is such an intimate thing. I don't think anyone should be ever taking advice where you don't have any type of context of what advice you're taking. You should know at least minimum, but I think you should set the bar for yourself to know more than minimum. Yes, you could definitely throw your money into the stock market and see it grow. I don't know about this year because it's really volatile. You could even chase cryptocurrency and could have been an early you know, person that invested in Bitcoin. But if you don't really know how it's growing, one, is it even going to continue to grow? And then two, once it stops growing or you're actually at a loss, then you're kind of sitting there saying to yourself, well, how did I let this happen? And I I don't think anyone should ever be in a place where anything, whether it's finances, business, relationship, where you are kind of just sitting back thinking, well, how did this happen? Yeah. What advice would you give to 21-year-old Jesse on where you're at today and would you do anything differently? And this could be with anything. This could be with your career. This could be with finances, real estate, family, loaning people money. I think I did something really smart at a young age that I didn't really think was that smart um, at the time, which was I was always living rent-free or under $500 a month for the first Till I was basically 28 years old, I was living for less than five. Oh my gosh. We didn't even get into that. Yes. Can you dig into that? Tell me how you did that. Yeah. It's highly illegal and I don't recommend it. It was me and my four buddies and we were all like 21 and in LA and trying to make it in our own right, whatever that meant. And we were like, all right, well, let's get a two bedroom apartment. I always put myself on the lease because I always had the best credit. So I would charge them all a little bit more money because that was the reason we got approved. Yeah. And then we went to Home Depot and we got some really cool guys to help us out. And they built a wall in the living room, which is completely against the lease agreement, but we did it. But I think the next step is how can I get my housing and my living expenses covered? So like, I'd like to do one more real estate move that the surplus covers like my car and 
you know, health insurance and groceries and all the rest of that stuff. Um, because then I think I can, I, I do a better job at my career, my, my, my job when I'm not worrying about finances. So to get to a place where I don't need to make money is a great place for me to be because I can get more creative. Finance is such a, an added stress to people. And so I think to be able to figure out a way to alleviate that stress is, is good. But I wanted to thank you so much for coming on today and, and just being so open and vulnerable about your money. And oh my goodness, like you're not even in finance and you're pretty savvy, I would say. So thank you so much. No, and from my side, like I've always, you know, thank you for having me, one, two, I... I'm wildly impressed by you. I've always been wildly impressed by you. I think you have a ton to offer to a lot of folks and I'm excited and I'm happy for you that you're doing this. So congrats. Thank you. And I'm excited for you as well. What is the cost of doubt? Just how does it hurt us to doubt ourselves, our opportunities, our abilities, or the people around us? I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about the spiritual and emotional cost of doubt as well, because we've all been there. We've all walked into a room and felt even just for a moment like we didn't belong, like we were imposters. I was once invited to a charity event and at this charity event, the tables were $300,000. I sat there looking around thinking, I make a lot of money but I am literally sitting at a table with billionaires. I'm poor comparatively to them. Why am I here? Do I belong here? This was a mistake. And let me tell you, whether you're in a room full of billionaires or whether you're in a meeting or a relationship, that feeling has kept us back. It has kept us back and imposter syndrome and self-doubt have a real cost. Here's Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, psychologist and best-selling author, to talk to us more about imposter syndrome. So self-doubt makes us choose certain behaviors or certain pathways, and so it can make us feel like we don't belong in a particular place, and that can make us really feel insecure and, and, and affect the way we show up. It can also keep us stuck in certain places, so we can stay stuck in jobs that are toxic for us because we can feel like, well, maybe nobody else will want us, or maybe we're not good enough to be anywhere else, so we'll just be grateful to be where we are. So it can really help, it can really affect, like, the ability for you to kind of feel like you deserve more, can get more, can allow yourself to kind of uh, grow, be outside of certain boxes. So it really does impair your ability to kind of think beyond, be beyond, like um, see what is ca- what you're capable of, what's possible. So how do we break out of it? Yeah, so one of the things that's really important is to face it. And so a lot of people think, oh, I have imposter syndrome. I'll have it for the rest of my life. Some people say, oh, it's good for me. And none of those things are true. Um, if you want to actually face it, you can do so. You, It's really about understanding where it came from, understanding what your triggers are, understanding how to dislocate the triggers um, from the cycle. So breaking the cycle in particular spaces of that cycle It's also about learning how to care for yourself in in better and healthier ways because we often deprioritize ourselves. It's about really stopping the automatic negative thoughts that get in our way um, when we are triggered. It's about doing a a bunch of different things that help you remove the experience of imposter syndrome. And now people often ask me, you know, well, does that make go away forever? 
well, you're going to, you're going to get triggered for it. The idea is you're going to get triggered for it, but by developing the tools and skills, you'll be able to actually do something about it when you get triggered, as opposed to just fall into the cycles. I don't need to go back to my first days on the floor of the stock exchange to tell you a story about self-doubt. In fact, it happened a couple months ago, my first day filming going public. I am the host. It is a new position, a new host. I've never hosted before. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was a hot mess. I was so much of a hot mess that after six hours of filming, I was still a nervous wreck. I whispered to one of the APs on set and I said, can you give me a tequila shot? Can you give me a tequila shot so I can calm my nerves? And in that moment, I took a shot, took a deep breath. I prayed a little bit with my sister and I said, I belong. I am worthy. I am meant to be here. If I wasn't, they wouldn't have chose me to host this show. Everybody has self-doubt, but that doesn't mean doubt is free. It has a cost. And the more we understand that, the less we are willing to pay it. You belong. And when you find yourself in a space of doubt in the future, remember my story, remember this episode, remember Dr. Lisa's tips, and most importantly, remember you got this. Join me, Lauren Simmons, on our next episode of Mind Body Wealth dropping next week. Be sure to follow Mind Body Wealth only on Spotify. Until next time. Mind Body Wealth with Lauren Simmons is a Spotify original production from Best Case Studios. It's executive produced by Lauren Simmons and produced by Ayana Angel. From Spotify, executive producers are Gina Delvac and Jifa Yador. Producer is Tierra Darnell. Executive producer for Best Case is Adam Pincus. Our associate producers, Ali Gallo, Aaron Allen, and Stephanie Geary are the editorial directors. Our editor is Dean White with the help of Abby Austria. Thanks to Marmoset and Five Alarm for this music. And special thanks to Kevin Pham, Lauren Chin, Colin Frederick, Hannah Lebowitz Lockhart at Best Case, Evan Tarantino, Free Bird, Amanda Long, Jordan Tochinski at Spotify for production support, and Ashley Acevedo and Arabella Roberts at Artists First. <laughs>